0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times video show, Monday to Thursday, 10 to 1. You can listen live on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on uh, the Times Radio app or um, at times.radio. There we are, I remember them all. Now, then, uh, before we get going with today's episode, thanks for, to those of you who've already sent in your big ideas, how to improve the country. It could be a policy change. It could be a spending uh, idea, a tax or spending idea. We're talking more about that in just a moment on the podcast. Uh, we're talking to Suzanne Hayward, whose uh, late husband, Jeremy Hayward, was the Cabinet Secretary, uh, the most senior official in Whitehall. They set up a competition in his name uh, to come up with big ideas that will change the country after the pandemic. Uh, Michael Gove is helping to judge them. Uh, and we want some more of your entries. So just record your ideas as a voice note on your phone. You've probably got your phone in your hand if you're listening to the podcast. Uh, Record your idea as a voice note, then email me matt.chorley at times.radio and uh, we will play some of them out on the radio and here on the podcast later in the week. That's matt.chorley at times.radio. Whatever you think... Why on earth don't they just do that? It could be, I don't know, skateboards for dogs or taxing people who talk about their dreams, whatever it might be, matt.chorley at times.radio. Send us your ideas as a voice note. Right, coming up, we talk about spending and when should Rishi Sunak turn off the spending taps? We talk about that uh, later in the podcast. But first, the columnist panel, no David Aronovich today. Uh, So we've got Tom McTague instead and he joins our regular Tuesday panellist, Daniel Finkelstein. Let's kick off with talking about the sort of two big international stories around which seem very different in lots of ways but actually there are similarities. You've got Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar, uh, you've got the the military coup uh, there and her and lots of her supporters being um, arrested. Meanwhile in Russia you've got Alexei Navalny, uh, he's appearing in court uh, this morning, uh, uh, opposition leader uh, again you know and all of his supporters being rounded up. But Danny there is an interesting question isn't there because well, partly Aung Su Suu you Kyi's know, reputation has been up and down like nobody's business. Um, but we sometimes expect, to, you know, the, the dissidents, heroes, if you like, but they're not always perfect.
2: Yeah, so so Suu so, turns out to be the sort of Kate Bingham of uh, of coups. <laughs> so one minute, uh, you know, people are sort <laughs> of bad-mouthing her joke. and the next moment she's a heroine again. And... um it it's, these are very interesting uh, things because they they occur very often uh you know the the, the Syrian uh, revolt was another example and, and and what happened in Libya another uh, and actually I struggle with this all the time with with a figure like Malcolm X as well you can find dubious parts of their politics and it does matter because if they were to be victorious um then obviously it's that politics that would be triumphant uh, but at the same time uh, they're very bravely struggling against uh, repressive measures so um i think this sort of change in her reputation from one minute to the next discovering that she you know she wasn't a pure democrat because she had to make uh, compromises that most of us i think uh, you know felt were were immoral compromises and yet um you know now she's um Again, demonstrated that actually, uh, at the same time as a compromise, she was also quite brave. I just find these kind of morally complicated issues very interesting to follow. And um, at the same time as, you know, wishing her uh, the best in the, her struggle and, do, and regarding her as, you know, a hero for human rights, and a part of me knows she isn't quite that
1: what do you yeah what, do you think that's a problem tom that in too often in uh well politics maybe in life generally everyone wants you know goodies and baddies and then sometimes it's a bit confusing when the baddies turn out to be goodies yeah uh, the goodies turn out to be baddies
2: well a really really interesting example I, I just cited it before is malcolm x right unquestionably um a great hero of uh civil rights resistance uh in terms of his reputation um but much lesser when you study the things that he was saying and the things that he stood for. Um, and his uh, reputation has been both inspirational and problematic. Um, people just aren't simple. Um, Martin Luther King, I think was much more, was a much simpler, more s- straightforward um, uh, political figure, but then again, he didn't hold power. Uh, and uh, then when you, when you hold power, you have to make compromises. So I think all these, the, all this is pointing to is the, you know, the, the, the moral complexity. Um, but, At the same time, uh, I don't think that one can allow one's doubts about aspects of the politics either of Navalny or Aung San Suu Kyi to obscure what's really happening in those countries and uh, to put oneself completely behind them as symbols of resistance to that.
1: Uh, What what do you think, Tom?
3: Yeah, I I think it's fascinating and it's very difficult to, to, to judge these. I think we do constantly look... Uh, to political leaders or or icons and we try and project this kind of their perfect uh, being onto them and think that they they can foresee the future or they're perfectly moral, they, they don't make compromises that we do. You see that here with like David Hume when he died, you know, the great man, you know, nobody's, nobody uh, doubts his greatness and yet he made morally questionable compromises, bringing Sinn Féin into the peace process he felt it was the right thing to do others didn't you know you look at Muhammad Ali when we're talking about um uh Malcolm X this this great icon but some of the things he said about some of his Mm. opponents were appalling and yet which we try to sort of gloss over that because it doesn't fit into our need to have a hero that we can look up to and sort of I don't know what it is whether we're projecting something um that sort of deep inside us that we need
1: this cuts across, you know, politics generally. Way doesn't it, Danny? In the, in the um, it's not possible to think that, you know, it's not possible in the sort of the discourse around politics to think that Boris Johnson's not great in lots of ways. He's had a terrible, you know, situation that he's had to deal with. He's made some mistakes, but you know. I, I wouldn't want to be there. You can't if you express that sort of view, particularly on social media, hmm. he's either he's either a hero and everything's gone brilliantly, or he's a he's a total nightmare yeah. and, you know, evil. And actually people are just complicated and life is complicated. Well and and look what's happened, you know, over the vaccines and, and, and the EU, and it
2: hasn't been long before everyone was talking about how brilliant Ursula von der Leyen is, and actually I think there are many ways in which she is a very impressive person, but that doesn't mean flawless or always possessing of convincing answers, and in exactly the same way, uh, Boris Johnson has um, you know, quite big flaws, and I've been very critical of him, but there are also great strengths which have allowed him to become Prime Minister with a big majority. Uh, exactly. And um, the 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 truth is people are a bit more mixed than we give uh, credit for and it's also the same I know I'm going to write about this for tomorrow that sometimes they people do the same thing twice and once it turns into a triumph and the second time into a disaster or the other way round
3: i think i think one interesting um Character in this actually, Matt, is um, Arlene Foster in in Northern Ireland. You know, she. We've got the trouble in Northern Ireland at the moment, but she's this this uh, complicated figure. Her own father was uh, the victim of a um, IRA attack, and yet she sort of finds the will to to go to uh, Martin McGuinness's funeral because she thinks it's the right thing to do. Over here, we have a view of her as a. Uh, sort of arch hardliner and that is in one sense true but in Northern Ireland now she's seen as a bit soft and so we they see it from a completely <laughs> different perspective but she's a complicated figure who's trying to 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 balance politics and morality and her own beliefs and all of this and it's just very very difficult as you say.
1: Yeah Clarissa has just uh, tweeted just saying nobody's perfect end of. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? It's in our nature that, you know, people are up and they're down and they're great or they're terrible. And actually, maybe it's a bit more of a model. Tom, as you've mentioned um, Arlene Foster there, let's, let's head to Northern Ireland. Um, there's been obviously a lot of talk about the land border and, you know, the, the strange kerfuffle over the weekend about um, shutting the land border between Ireland and Northern Ireland for vaccines. But now we've got checks suspended at Larne. And this does the sea border now become the, the new political front?
3: Yeah, I mean I I wrote about this um a while ago uh, in 2019 I went over there and there was this this raw fury with uh with the government among unionists about what they felt that you know they felt that they'd been stitched up and it was quite clear all the way back then that there was a um there was a, a weakness in the protocol which was that it didn't have the consent of the majority of unionists or a good chunk of unionists and they said we're going to use this article 16 to um to bring it down we are going to cause such social problems in northern ireland we are going to blockade the port and um try and stop trade going north to south um to show that this is unworkable and then with the, and then they'll have to uh bring it to an end nobody expected at that time that it would be the eu who first uh triggered the article 16 Sort of weakness that's buried in the buried in the protocol, Um, but what it's done is it's just from the unionist perspective, it said, okay, so the bar's not very high to to actually suspend this whole thing, so we're going to just ramp up the pressure. So it it boils down to this fundamental problem in Northern Ireland. It doesn't work like a normal democracy. It's not based on majority wins. It's based on an entirely different principle, which is. It only works if both sides effectively agree, a majority of both sides. And right now, it's very unclear whether there is a majority um, on both sides uh, of the divide for, you know, the current situation that we have. So it's a very, very, it's a very, very sort of tense situation, I think.
1: And there's one thing we don't want, Danny. It's tense situations in Northern Ireland and people taking sort of strong stances on things.
2: Well, look. you know, my view is the un- the unionist uh, leadership supported a Brexit without any idea how they were going to actually administer the Brexit they supported. And then they also supported increasingly hardline positions on it, uh, despite the fact that it was obvious that this would um, create either a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, nor a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, and you know, what's happened is some variant of of uh, the latter of those things. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that I think the union with Northern Ireland is going to be sustainable if they take that kind of action. Ultimately, they're already in a position whereby, and, and Tom knows much more about this than I do, but it seems to me they're already in a position whereby, uh, you know, the, the balance between the communities has been changing over quite a long period of time. Uh, and if they can't Engage themselves in making sensible political compromises, um, then the the situation just simply won't pertain. We won't be able to retain it um, as as a, a United Kingdom or as a Republic of Ireland. We'll have to change the arrangement. And so they kind of willed the 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 um, the kind of end of Brexit without without understanding what the means would be. And I, I just um, find that you know I'm find that very extraordinary and and difficult to sympathise with. To be honest.
1: yeah i I think sorry sorry
3: i think think there is an interesting point there that um psychologically when i spoke to speak to some of the unionists they they kind of sound like they're always testing the loyalty of the mainland the or you know of the brits or the english that they kind of think are just these soft people who are always out to betray them it's almost as if they know that they're going to be um betrayed but they 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 need to test it. They need to uh, they, they need to see that it actually happens. So th- there's a strange psychological uh, underpinning of all of this.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's the thing. It, it, once again, it goes back to people taking sort of what they think are principal positions and then, you know, their their personal pride, meaning it's difficult to admit. Yeah, we hadn't really thought this through particularly. Um, let's go to a different <laughs> bit of the, U- of the UK that we don't speak about very often. The Isle of Man. Uh, forget New Zealand. They they seem to have got it nailed at the Isle of Man. Their pubs are reopening. Um, uh, Fifty pubs are free to open again. So are the schools, businesses, gyms and restaurants. Um, sh- is there anything we could learn from this, Tom? Or is this just what happens when you've got quite a small island and you can, you know, you can get control of coronavirus slightly better than a country with, you know, a mainland with 60 um, odd million people on it? Well, I think, I think it's more the latter. Uh, I went to Northern, to to the Isle of Man
3: with some friends walking once and it, and it, it was kind of remarkable. How different it is, and how it, they, you know, it's a sort of independent nation somewhere in between that we all forget about. Um, and there was that wonderful story, wasn't there, of the of the guy who tried to see his girlfriend in the Isle of Man and took a jet ski from <laughs> Liverpool <laughs> or somewhere like that and got arrested when he turned up. Um, but yeah, they're, they're able to to manage their borders because they're an island. Um, but I do think that there is a there's a sort of general sense in the country. That hang on, aren't we also an island? Yes, we're hugely connected and we're very close to a very very you know busy part of the world, and we have this enormous um, you know airport in Heathrow, with a we're a, effectively a big port for the world to come in and out of. But I think people feel that we don't, we haven't taken any advantage of our of our island status, and they feel that you know it's a constant sense of. Um, we're just not in control here. We, haven't, we don't have the people to man the border. We don't have the capacity to put people in hotels. Um, it, it, it seems like the public were ahead of the government in this from the start. And you see the South African variant now. And I think it's a real problem for Boris in that he again looks like he's slow and he's behind the advice and he's taking the most lenient um, decision possible and it's going to keep costing us. It's
2: always possible for the public to be ahead of the government because the public can believe inconsistent things. So, uh, everyone was absolutely furious with France for cutting off Britain uh, by (laughs) closing the border. There was a desperate thing. And then, 24 hours later, thankfully, you know, there weren't all these lorries piling up because people were allowed into the country, into France and out of France after all. And it was all going to be okay. Mm. And now everyone's furious the other way. Um, And so, you can, you can. there's no simple solution it's not an easy thing to do to cut britain off um from everywhere else and it's got big consequences and obviously there are there are some big advantages to it um but whether we believe that we are forever going to be able to remove mu- uh, any kind of uh, mutations um, from this country by dint of stopping anybody coming into this country or leaving it, um, you know, Britain isn't the Isle of Man. Um, the, 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 uh, it, that's sort of like a bit like when I, I used to remember people making those kind of analogies when promoting Brexit. And you would sort of wake up three quarters of the way through the pamphlet and realize that Britain was being compared to Guernsey and think, well, we're not Guernsey. Um <laughs> So I, <laughs> the I Isle of Sark. I, <laughs> exactly. Uh so I, I just you know, my view is uh we aren't New Zealand, um and that's and we aren't China, you know, we are who we are and we've got to make practical arrangements. So I, I that suit this country. Now I do I do think um it seems like we've been looser on borders than we than we ought. Um but there are real costs to 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 a decision like that. And it's not obvious once we put those restrictions in place, ones that we were all against, by the way, before, um, we'll be able to take them off again.
1: Um yeah, because it, it, the it danger is, is of the there being you... new strains of the virus, that'll never stop. It is interesting the point you make that you know when, when we close the borders, this is sensible behaviour by a country doing the right thing. When France do it, there's absolute outrage. Um, <laughs> it just goes to show that, that things are complicated. That's the, maybe that's the thread. Well, the conversation we've had that you know things are a bit complicated, and um, you know it's about nuance, and there's often no good or yeah. right answer. Well, it's, it's what, it's, what wait, I call the it's what
2: i call the michael fabricant problem which is that uh, um charles branderson in, in his diary has a, an incident where he says to michael fabricant about his hair uh, that's an extraordinary wig and michael fabricant replies it's more complicated than that so whenever i get something <laughs> like this i call it i call it the michael fabricant problem
1: that was Daniel Finkelstein and Tom taken And, of course, you can read uh, Danny every week in The Times on a Wednesday. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, when should Rishi Sunak turn off the spending taps? past imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. A weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, ex-Special Forces soldier and best-selling novelist Andy McNabb talks candidly about growing up with his adopted family, his time in juvenile detention, and how he finally found his home
0: in the British Army. You're responsible for yourself, whether you're six-year-old or whether you're you know, 96-year-old, you're responsible for yourself. So, Suck it all up and just get out there. Past
1: imperfect, with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, Andy McNab in his own words.
4: Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the
3: Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Red Box podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, it's about a month until the budget, and already Rishi Sunak is coming under pressure from all sides. Should he spend more? Should he spend less? But the truth is, he's already spent quite a lot of money. People need to know we will do all we can to give everyone the opportunity of good and secure work. People need to know that although
6: hardship lies ahead, no one will be left without hope.
1: In pounds and pence, that means 55 measures to support businesses, costing £129 billion in total that includes £55 billion on furlough bounce back loans worth £27 billion eat out to help out cost £840 million and the kickstart scheme to hire new employees cost £2 billion there are 30 measures for health and social care costing £58 billion including test and trace with a price tag of £23 billion PPE for NHS and social care workers cost £15 billion there are 44 measures supporting individuals costing a total of £35 billion that includes the increase in universal credit payments which cost £4.6 billion and the stamp duty cut which cost £3 billion there are 110 measures supporting public services costing a total of 48 billion pounds including 19 million pounds on nightingale courts 240 million pounds on cycling and walking infrastructure and 60 million pounds on laptops of children who can't attend school there were another 48 measures of support all costing in total 2 billion pounds all of these measures and many more we don't have time to name come to a grand total of 271 billion pounds in government spending on the pandemic the spending watchdog, of the national audit office estimates that totals 116 billion pounds the government has spent already and a further 89 billion in loans or guarantees so when should the government turn off the taps yeah, that's a question we're asking this morning. I'm joined now by Robert Choate, former head of the Office for Budget Responsibility. The independent watchdog, we sort of cast a, a critical eye over government spending plans. Uh, 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 thanks for joining us, Robert. Good morning, Matt. So, on the big question, let's first of all talk about what's happened so far, and then we'll talk about uh, where what Rishi Sunak might do next. How does the... £270-odd billion pounds spent so far compared to um, previous crises, previous amounts of spending by governments?
6: Um, it is relatively uh, large as an amount. Normally, when you have uh, recessions, the hit to the public finances is dominated by the loss of tax revenue. Here, you're seeing more of the effect coming through Uh, Spending, And as you said in your uh, your shopping list there, that's partly obviously much higher spending on uh, the health service and uh, the direct response to the pandemic and also supporting individuals and businesses uh, through the period in which their income is is much reduced. So uh, in that sense, it's a more spending heavy hit than it would normally be. Total spending through the course of this financial year so far is about 30 percent up on what it had been in the previous year. So we're talking uh, certainly very big sums of money here. And I
1: suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Because in a, quote, normal recession, you know, there's an economic downturn. Uh, people spend less. People find themselves out of work. So the government's taking in less tax, which is where the big hit's come in. It's all the money that Rishi Sunak has been sh- shoveling out, uh, which is the problem. And obviously, what was it, 10 months ago when he first announced a £12 billion pound package and everyone got very excited because that seemed like a lot of money. Part of the problem has been, He's often acted as if this was going to be a short, sharp crisis, and it's turned into a quite a long, sharp crisis, if you like.
6: I think that's right. I mean, you you only need to look at the fact that between the March budget last year and when my old colleagues produced their uh, forecast in November uh, alongside the, the spending review, the latest set of spending announcements, you had in effect had 14 mini budgets between those two dates, each of which was costing about £20 billion through a combination of spending and and tax reduction. So clearly one of the, the the difficulties in saying when can you turn the taps off is that you are having to see how the pandemic and the response to it evolves. And a lot is going to depend on how well the vaccine rollout goes, uh, how quickly it is possible to Uh, remove the public health restrictions, how willing the general public are to respond to that loosening of restrictions and actually go out and spend and uh, and work again. So uh, at the moment, it really is having to sort of make policy real time rather than what we're used to, which is essentially tax and spending decisions happen twice a year. And the rest of the time is pretty quiet.
1: And obviously, there's sort of politics plays into this as well as economics, because, you know, Rishi Sunak's Gained huge popularity uh, with the public because he's given them quite a lot of money. Um, when you're sitting at the Office of Budget Responsibility and casting an eye over this sort of stuff, are you just looking at the economics? Because if it, it's pretty eye-watering uh, in terms of the economics, has there been things which you've thought, me I wouldn't have done that.
6: <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the, the the role of the OBR is is quite tightly constrained by the job that Parliament gave it, which is to essentially do a prediction of uh, what will be spent, what will be raised, what you need to borrow, what debt is going to be on the basis of the current the government's stated policy at the time that you're uh, making the forecast. It's not the OBR's job to predict how policy might change uh, in the future, although we've had to set out, well, the OBR has had to set out a variety of assumptions on that. I think clearly coming out of this, um, one important question is going to be, you know, what is the, the, the legacy in in terms of the public finances of this pandemic? Will it be that there was just a temporary period in which we had to borrow a colossally large amount of money because of spending and, and some reduction in tax receipts? But that once that shock is out of the way, we go back to pretty much where we would have been uh, beforehand, in which case you're left with a much bigger stock of debt, but there's not a huge uh, you know, pressure on the government to sort of pay all of that money back. Things get much more complicated if you come out of this and you have what the economists would call a, a structural budget deficit. So there's a just a much bigger day to day gap between spending and tax revenues that is not simply going to go away when the economy recovers and that can partly be because the crisis has done permanent damage to the uh, to the underlying workings of the economy it can also be down to You know, part political decisions. So in particular, are there some temporary support measures for businesses and individuals that it proves hard for the government to take the money back again? We're seeing that in the debate around universal credit. And I think a very big issue is coming out of this is what share of national income are we going to be wanting to spend on health service, public health and social care coming out of this. It would be a surprise if you didn't come out of this thinking we need more resilience in the system. You're going to want to spend permanently a higher share of our national income on all of that. And that shapes the other spending and tax decisions that the government will confront when things settle down after the, the acute phase of the crisis is passed.
1: Given the budget, I mean the budget is set for the beginning of March, and you know there was probably a hope when they did that that we might have been out of lockdown, and now we're not going to be. Is this March budget the moment for uh, Rishi Sunak to set out what the future might look like? And on this debate of a uh, stimulus, uh, it's sort of interesting. We had a, we had this bit debate politically mean The financial crisis a decade ago uh, and all the money was spent essentially on bailing out the banks and um, uh, not a lot left for fiscal stimulus. David Smith wrote a very good piece on The Sunday Times in this at the weekend. Uh, but if you look over to America, they've got, you know, Joe Biden's pursuing a £1.4 trillion stimulus plan in the EU. It's £660 billion, but there's debate about whether or not it should be more. Should we should soon be thinking about something like that in the u k that actually spending money directly to 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 invigorate the economy as we come out of this means that we might get it obviously going to cost money, but we might get a bit of you know rocket boost under the economy rather than a sort of sluggish bounce back
6: well, I mean to take your your first question, I would be surprised if uh, i mean i don't know i'm not I'm not close to it anymore. That the the Chancellor and the Treasury feel that they are confident enough about how the remaining element of the of the of the of the, of the pandemic phase is going to go that this will be the time that you can actually set out medium term five year plans for the public finances that you could be reasonably confident of of sticking to obviously when we were back in march the expectation was that you would be able to do that in november i think november is the new march and march was the the new november you're getting that point at which it seems sensible to try to put together a medium-term plan you know i, I there may be some down payments and some signals on what they intend to do but i'd be surprised if you saw that laid down as a really detailed blueprint uh in in march in terms of the of of You know, the the health of the economy coming out. I think obviously the government is going to be paying, or the Treasury is going to be paying and the Bank of England very close attention to how businesses and individuals respond as the public health restrictions uh, are lifted and whether economic activity uh, revives. Uh, And as I said, there are there are two judgments there, one of which is that, you know, has there been an underlying hit to the economy and you can't stimulate your way out of that problem? But is there also, as you say, a sort of temporary weakness in demand? Consumers are just, you know, still that bit, you know, reluctant, not very confident. uh, And there may then, you know, they may feel the need for some greater stimulus there. I mean, one of the big uncertainties is obviously different people have been affected financially by this crisis in different ways. So there are some people, relatively well-off people, who have, you know, continued to have reasonably robust incomes but haven't had as many many things to spend them on. I think there will be an interest then in whether those people go out and spend that. So I think judging how much stimulus is needed coming out of this is a difficult question. I suspect they'll want to see more evidence before, you know, making any medium-term judgments that you know certainly one way or the other.
1: Does does Rishi Sunak, do you think, does he need to lead a sort of debate in this country that, um, you know, he needs to be sort of, this isn't just a time for just tweaking a little bit here and a little bit there and, a, you know, holding a threshold to catch more people. Does there need to be a sort of a big bang moment which says, look, we're, ironically, we leave the EU, we might actually end up with a slightly more European model of, of it is going to mean higher taxes in order to fund um, higher public spending?
6: Well, I mean, he has said, obviously, that, you know, we don't have at the moment any active fiscal t- targets or fiscal rules. He has said, I think, very sensibly, look, we need to you know get through the, the acute phase of the crisis to see what the fiscal legacy looks like before you put that uh, in place. And I think certainly if you're in a situation where, as I say, uh, the debate is not around paying back, in quotes, the money that we've had to borrow this year to deal with the acute phase. But, for example, we are going to want in future to spend permanently one to two percent of GDP, for example, more on health and social care than we did before. It would be a surprise if you if you felt you needed a permanent spending increase of that sort that you didn't match with you know, a permanent tax increase as distinct from just borrowing every year that much uh, more. So I think you're, you're, you're right in that there is a, a set of choices to be made, both about what you think the underlying damage to the economy and the underlying damage to the public finances has been, but but what do you want the size of the state and what the state does to look like as you come out of this? And I think that after years of focusing on public services, primarily on saying is money being spent in the most efficient way possible, you come out of it with people talking much more about do we have enough resilience, do we have enough preparedness in health and other public services, and if you want to have more of that, it costs money.
1: Uh, just finally, because I know this is a sort of bugbear of, uh, of uh, economists versus politicians, the fuel duty freeze. Um, it's one of those things, it was a great wheeze, but it was announced at a dim and distant past by George Osborne, and no Chancellor has ever been able to to touch it since despite you know successive governments saying they, they're committed to going green and actually encouraging people away from uh, petrol and diesel vehicles might not be a bad idea it, it, has the time come to to get rid of the fuel duty freeze you think
6: i think well most economists and most public finance watchers would would certainly say that that you know you do want to you know finally bite the bullet on that at, at some point it is one of the great ironies as i said earlier the OBR always had to make its forecasts on the assumption that uh, government policy would be followed. It was always government policy to raise fuel duty in line with the inflation, and then every year the policy was not adopted for that year. <laughs> so uh, if you were a betting person, you would be betting that that freeze uh, remains uh, in place. Uh, but I think the pressures to uh, to think again about it at a time when you 're having to reevaluate the public finances as a whole uh, it 's clearly a, a stronger case now for the people who 'd like to see you know some more back action on the back of that than it has been in the past.
1: Robert, it's really good to speak to you. Uh, Robert Chope, there, former head of the Office of Budget Responsibility, the independent watchdog which casts uh, an eye over all the government's numbers, and will be well probably crunching in the next few weeks, crunching Wishy Sunak's numbers ahead of the budget uh, on uh, March the third. In just a moment, we're going to speak to uh, two more people. Um, uh, we're going to speak to uh, Morgan Schondemeyer from the free market think tank, the Adam Smith Institute, and Costas Lapavistas, uh, an economist from the SOAS uh, University. That's next on Times
4: Radio. <laughs> On digital radio, on
1: the web, and via the Times Radio
4: app. Matt Chorley on Times
1: Radio. So what should Rishi Sunak do then in the budget coming up in a month's time? We're joined now by uh, Morgan Sundermeyer from the free market think tank, the Adam Smith Institute. Hi, Morgan.
5: Hi, how are you?
1: I'm very good. I'm very good. Thanks for joining us. And uh, uh, Professor Kostas Lapavistas, uh, who's an economist from the SOAS uh, University of London. Morning, Kostas.
4: Hello, nice to be with you. Thank you. Nice for to have right.
1: you with us. Nice to have you with us. So, um, uh, Morgan, if if Wishy Sunak picked up the phone to you and said, "What shall I do in my budget?" What what would you like to see uh, from uh, from the Chancellor uh, when he makes his budget at the beginning of March?
5: It's going to be a difficult one, mostly because of the timing of the budget. We talked about it a little bit earlier, where we're still dealing with coronavirus restrictions. So it's going to be hard to say this is what I'm going to do for the next six months to a year. But what I would like to see are some real focus on uh, rolling back spending as much as is feasible. Um, You know, kind of making sure that these temporary schemes are temporary when we get back on uh, safe footing with the virus. Um, And no real harmful tax rises that will hamper economic recovery. Um, There's a lot of focus on making sure businesses can operate um, and kind of really get back on on stable footing. And if we were to ha- uh, hit these uh, businesses or people with extra taxes while they're down, we might see a, a slower recovery.
1: Okay, that's that's uh, what you'd like to see. Um, start maybe raining into that spending. Is it time to time to turn the taps off, Costas, or is it or is it now the time for a, for a full blown fiscal stimulus?
4: I think the worst mistake that Rishi Sunak could make would be to repeat what this country did last. In the last decade. You see, following the great crisis of 2007 2009, the focus of uh, British policy was on restraining fiscal expenditure, bringing the deficit under control. And uh, we've lived through the results of that. For, was it, it was a lost decade. Uh, growth was very weak, wage increases were poor, productivity was abysmal in terms of its growth. It's been a, a decade of stagnation. Um, Why? Because private aggregate demand has been weak, investment and consumption, and state demand, public demand, was weakened because we tried to uh, restrain the deficit. If we repeat the same mistake this decade, then the UK is in for a very problematic period ahead, very problematic period ahead in terms of uh, uh, its economy and in terms of its society. Rishi Sunak should do the opposite of what happened last Decade, he should not focus on restraining public finances or tidying them up or whatever we're going to call it. He should focus on how he should he could use public finance to uh, transform the British economy. Uh, that's what he should be doing. He should be supporting aggregate demand uh, in the years ahead, and he should be targeting this support in order to improve aggregate supply as well. We need uh, real radical reform in this country, and that's what he should. Um, uh, open up the way towards uh, i believe in this budget
1: of course one of the problems uh, morgan is that you're making the case of the, the, the traditional case of tory mps but actually some tory mps uh, have got quite used to the amount of spending and although they might in theory like the idea of balancing the books they're less keen on uh, on the reality let's take a listen to an exchange from uh, treasury questions uh, last week in the house of commons With the lockdown or some form of restrictions set to continue well into the spring, will the Chancellor please give some certainty to those businesses and individuals struggling financially by announcing an early extension to his various support packages, including help with VAT, business rates and stamp duty, the self-employment scheme and, of course, the universal credit uplift? Well, uh, Mr Speaker, my uh, honourable friend, I hope will appreciate that the Various things he just mentioned total about, I think, 20 or 30 billion pounds. And so he will understand if it's reasonable that we consider all of these things in the round at budget when we will set out the next stage in our economic response to coronavirus. Uh, that was Soon out responding to the Tory MP Jason McCartney in the House of Commons last week. Uh, Morgan, you've got a bit of a battle on your hands, haven't you? If even Tory MPs can't be persuaded to um, tighten their belts a bit, you know, uh, it, the, econ- the uh, economics of the country seems to have moved towards the left.
5: Well, I think what's important, and especially in that clip, is we are talking about while we have restrictions on trading, we're talking about supporting people and businesses while they are not able to trade properly, whether that's lockdown, reduced capacity, or what have you. If the government's going to restrict businesses' abilities to trade and people's ability to, to buy and purchase and eat out at restaurants or whatever it is, then yes, it's only right for the government to support them through those times. But I don't think you'll see as many conservatives calling for the government to still be paying 80% of wages when economic activity is back to normal. I think that the measures that we brought through were almost outside party politics in in a lot of ways because we recognize that these were unusual times. When we get back to more, quote unquote, normal times, we can't be seeing the same amount of expenditure. And I don't think it is that controversial to say that.
1: What about the point that Costas was saying that um, we don't want to repeat the sluggish recovery we had uh, from the financial crisis and what we've seen in, uh, in terms of the economy for the last 12 months? Is it worth trying something different, do you think?
5: I, mean, I don't think you'll be surprised to hear that I disagree that <laughs> these two different crises are completely different in terms of structural versus, uh, you know, one off shock because of an external virus. Um, you don't have the same responses to a systemic structural problem as you do with an external shock. So the idea that we wouldn't cut back spending when we have increased it so much. I mean, I don't think anyone's calling for a return to austerity measures, but you can't – you. The idea that we wouldn't rein things back in when we have been expending an enormous amount of money, kind of just throwing money at the problem—it's not targeted at all the way that um, it was. It was said that we need to target emergencies; aren't targeted. They're kind of just throwing money at the problem, hoping that it will stick enough that people will be able to get through this crisis.
1: Costas, just to explain to people—they're thinking: well, if we've already spent all this money so far, why throw even more money around? Maybe when we do come out of this. Crisis. That's the point where we do need to start tightening our belts a bit. And actually, there might be a bit of an economic uptick anyway, because people start spending. Those of us who've been lucky to stay in work and have been just sitting at home can start spending. And it's not—it's not the government's job to 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 start splashing the cash around.
4: For sure. But uh, let's look at the data a little bit more closely. Uh, The British government had a a reduction in tax revenue of about sixty billion last year, and it increased its spending by about two hundred and eighty billion most of that spending was uh, on the health service on the furlough scheme and on support for um, small and medium businesses that were badly hit by the measures taken by the government so obviously there were extraordinary measures to keep the economy afloat uh, no sane person would argue that the government should have done uh, otherwise the deficit created as a result is of the order of 350 to 400 billion pounds um, which is a substantial increase of national debt. But the servicing costs of the debt are actually down. Um, Britain spends less than 2% of GDP on uh, servicing this debt because obviously interest rates are down to zero. So national debt is not really a problem in terms of servicing it. It's not really a problem on the resources of of the country. Uh, And focusing on the uh, budget deficit and the debt would be a mistake right now. What should happen uh, is to re, in a sense, reorganize and target the expenditure. No one is arguing that the, the government should be spending, you know, should have a deficit of three hundred and fifty billion or four hundred billion in, in this year. Obviously not. Uh, however, the government must not try and reduce the deficit rapidly. That would be to repeat the mistake of um, the previous decade. It should target yeah. the spending. Uh, it should aim it at other things, and above all, it should aim it at public investment, support for. Uh, people's incomes um, and the the, the poor in this uh, country and support for businesses that are going to face debt problems uh, this year. And there the question of equity will pose itself. You see, the country needs policy that will begin to restructure the supply side. Our main fundamental problem right now is very weak productivity growth, very weak productivity growth, appalling actually. Uh, So unless there is public intervention with a wave of public investment that will also attract private investment. I don't see how the problem will be uh, dealt with. Focusing on public finances well, uh... is the worst thing we make.
1: Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio Show every Monday to Thursday, ten till one. Uh, You can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker, get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Redbox podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.